They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hi, and welcome to Decentralized Revolution, a podcast of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. I'm your host, Aaron Keith Harris. I'm the marketing director for the caucus. And we have a great guest for you today, Joshua Smith. He's, of course, running for LNC chair. That's chairman of the Libertarian National Committee, the governing board that that runs the national LP. Uh, you know, he was, I think, the runner-up in 2018. Uh, he's back on the campaign trail right now. And the Mises Caucus has endorsed and supported his run. And so we're going to talk a little bit about why he's running and, and what he hopes to do. Uh, in Austin in May, hopefully, and beyond. But before we get into the talk with him, I wanted to remind you about the Mises Pack Money Bomb that's coming up on Saturday, March 28th. It's just a couple of weeks from when this will go up. And what it's going to be is in our Facebook group, the uh, LP Mises the LP Mises Caucus Facebook group. We're going to be doing some exclusive live streams starting, I think, around 11 a.m. that day uh, for people who are in the group. So you got to sign up to the group uh, to to be part of this. But once you're in there, um, you will get to hear from Tom Woods, Scott Horton, Dave Smith, Jacob Hornberger, and maybe more. Uh, You can also get registered to uh, win uh, an AR-15 rifle, some Mises Silver Rounds, a T-shirt or two. By going to lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb. That's lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb. And there's a sign-up form on there for the giveaway. There's a link to our Facebook group that you need to be a member of to be a part of the viewing audience for the Money Bomb. And then there's the separate sign-up form uh, if you're not already a monthly contributor to Mises Pack. We're trying to get to 500 monthly contributors, and that ranges anywhere from uh, $5 to, I think we have some people, uh, maybe two, three, four hundred dollars $400. But pick the uh, amount that's right for you that you can do to help us through Austin and the rest of 2020 and help us get there. We're a little over 350 monthly contributors right now, and that's, uh, I think, around 52 or $5,300. We obviously think that if we get to our 500, we may be over 7,000 a month. And uh, the more Mises Pack is able to raise, the more we're able to do in promoting the decentralized revolution through supporting local candidates that uh, know and believe and talk about 
our message uh, by supporting initiatives and uh, other uh, direct ballot issues. They differ as to what they're called in each state, but to do things like uh, protect Second Amendment or help end the war on drugs. So that's uh, Saturday, March 28th. Go over to lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb to help us out. Just one more thing. Right at the very end of my interview with Josh, you'll hear a significant drop-off in the sound quality uh, of his audio. Not sure why that happened, and I, I tried to fix it a little bit. It's still not great, but I do know that it's there, and we'll try to avoid things like that in the future. Now it's my pleasure to uh, present to you my interview with Joshua Smith. So my guest today on Decentralized Revolution is the long-promised Joshua Smith. Uh, I wanted to have him on earlier, but you're a hard man to catch, and you you were sick last week, and so it's a pleasure to finally uh, have you here. How are you feeling, and how are you doing today, Josh? Oh, I'm feeling much better, you know, after that week-long bout with what I'm sure was the coronavirus. Right. <laughs> I'm doing much better now. Uh, it's it's hard, you know, when you travel as much as me every single weekend. It seems like every fourth trip you get the flu or a cold or just something stupid because the planes are in dirty places that recycle air. And, uh, so it was hard to catch up with you, and it's been hard to catch up with a bunch of other podcasts, too, while trying to do my own and travel all over the country. And, uh, but I am glad that I get to finally sit down with you. And, and you know, this is the, the flagship podcast of the Mises Caucus. And so it wouldn't be right if I couldn't make it on. Yeah, I know. I wanted to have you as, as number two or three after Mike and, and Jacob, but it's, it's, a, it's all good. Um, so uh, tell me why would anyone in his right mind want to be chairman of the National Libertarian Party? It, well, I don't think anybody in their right mind be chair of the national <laughs> party i don't think i'm in my right mind you have to be a little crazy to walk <laughs> it's just it how it's how it has to be uh look it's unpaid voluntary and you have to herd the entire libertarian party and if you've ever tried to herd a libertarian facebook group you know how hard that can be with eighteen thousand members so um I see an opportunity to use the platform of the national chairman to to increase our causes around the country, uh, make this party a viable fighting force for libertarian ideals uh, uh, in the nation. And um, I wasn't going to waste that 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 opportunity. You know, I think a lot of people probably would. And I and I won't. I refuse to, um, you know, and I, and I want I want it. I want to be the chair because I believe that I have the skill set to get those things done. And I think I've shown over the last two years that I have the skill set to get those things done. Yeah. I think it's interesting that uh, someone who kind of came out of nowhere in 2018, as far as running for chair, a lot of people criticized you for that. Like, Hey, you haven't been around long enough, wait your turn. Um, but then even though you lost, you kept your promise to stick around and work. So what what have you accomplished? Uh, because you were also you were elected to uh, the LNC at large position. Is that correct? Yeah. OK, yeah. so you've been on the on the same board that the, the chairman and vice chairman run um, and you stuck around. So tell tell us about you've been, I think, the number one recruiter. So how did that happen? What's working there and wh what else have you been doing? Well, it's, a, it's exactly the platform that I talked about in 2018. See, the problem was in 2018, you're right, nobody knew who I was. I was a regional rep for the Libertarian Party of Washington when I announced my run. I had worked on building some local county affiliates. I didn't really have any meat to point to, no successes, but I had a platform and I, I was spouting things that I thought 
or I was pretty sure would make us more successful. And one of those things was focused messaging. We needed to bring our messaging together from the national party, focus on the things that people care about, and then relate that messaging to them. And that's all I've really had to do around this country to get people to join this party in droves. I am the number one recruiter on the, on the LNC still right now, go for all through 2019 and now into 2020. Um, we've been able to, with the help of, of obviously the caucus and other friends of mine, we've been able to bring in thousands of new members around the country. I think at one point we were bringing in almost 200 members collectively a week. That's a lot of members. It's never seen a growth that fast in a non-presidential year since 2005. And, and I think we beat that. I, I really think that it might have been the fastest that growth has ever taken place in this party, but definitely in the last decade. Um, and, and we're showing that people, it, once you relate to people, once you make them the hero in your story, they will join the party. Hand over fist, those people are going to start coming over. And I've talked about this a lot as well as you know, there's a, there's a big contention in this party of people that want to make the Libertarian Party more like the two old parties. They think that that's going to make us more politically successful or give us more electoral success, at least. But that's not the truth, because 61% of the population in 2016 was completely done with the the uh, two old parties. They didn't want to vote for a presidential candidate. They hated them. They think they're a mess and they're just jaded. The people who are in those parties already are certainly not going to join a small, unsuccessful third party that's just trying to model themselves after the party they're already in. Why would they do that? And the other 61%, they're not coming if we're going to act like the two old parties. They don't want the two old parties. They've shown with their vote that they don't want the two old parties. So focus messaging, trying to be bold, standing out, but making it a relatable message, digestible and inarguable is the most important thing. If you can take the facts of, of the warfare state and boil it down to inarguable facts and, sh and show it to people, they, they have nothing to say. They say, you're right. You're the only party that's fighting against this. I should join you guys. Here we go. You know, people can disagree with a plank or two here on the, on the platform, but what it comes down to is they agree with 90% of that platform. And that's a lot more than they're going to agree with with the Republicans or Democrats. Right. I I think that there's been some malaise and um, uh, people have been a little disheartened after uh, what we thought at first in 2016 was a very successful election. We got more votes than at any other time. I almost all, more votes than every other libertarian candidate uh, combined. I think Gary Johnson did. But then things really fizzled. So, so, and I think that you're exactly right that that sort of not being as bold doesn't inspire people and doesn't create a culture of something that people want to be a part of. Like we're, we're, the, we're the underdog. It has to be a little bit fun and bold and high stakes to get people to even want to do this. And We've got to give people a viable option, uh, alternative to the to the two-party system if we don't then then we're failing we're not doing our jobs right. that's why we exist. right and so yeah we didn't capitalize on 2016 but the problem was is we fooled a lot of people in 2016 as to who we really are we played the two old party game we tried to act like the two old parties and once people realized that we were trying to be like the two old parties they left i mean look we just had this report on the lnc 12% of our membership base joined in 2016. Only 12% of those those giant, huge, growing vote totals, only 12% of our national party today came in in 2016. Now, you can uh, look at 2019 and compare them, 
we have 30% of the party today, 30%, almost a third of the party came in 2019, a non-presidential year because of bold leadership and messaging, plain and simple. That's the only reason. Right. Um, so how do we get to being a viable party? Ballot access is always an issue, media coverage, things like that. Uh, what's your, you know, three, four point plan if your chair to get us to that next level headed on the right track? Well, we're always going to have to focus on ballot access when we have states like Alabama, uh, Ohio. Yeah, Ohio. We have these states that are constantly changing the rules on us, and we're always going to have to stay up to date. We're always going to need a team of people that are ready to go and fight for ballot access and petition for ballot access. And we're always going to have to have special counsel that, that's going to help us with suing states. You know, it, it's it's one of those things that we're always going to have to battle until we're a major party in the U.S. So it's obviously going to be a big focus of mine. I'm always going to I'm always there's never going to get be a chair that gets elected to the Libertarian Party until we're a major party in the United States that doesn't have to focus on ballot access. So I don't need to put that in my platform. Everyone that knows me, everyone that's talked to me knows that I'm going to have a focus on ballot access. But what's important is that we get into the media, right? The media has no vested interest in us whatsoever. So I started, what I did was to to fix this problem, I started building a regional media team. In 2018, I called it the the media hit squad. Um, People thought that was a little too aggressive, but I, I, I liked it. But so we went to the regional media team. Essentially, that means we'll have one person in each of our eight regions, at least one, maybe two, that are constantly out looking for media opportunities and can take those media opportunities on behalf of the party. So like in the Northeast, we have Larry Sharps already signed on. North Carolina, we have Eric Rodsep already signed on. I have several others that are working on coming up with a plan for their area. So we're going to have a team of people that are going to go to the media and knock on the door until those chickens open up, period, plain and simple. We're going to get in the face of the public one way or another because we know they have no vested interest in us. Because we want to end the chaos and greed that they feed off of and they use to keep us separated. But we're coming and, and they're not going to be able to stop us. And we're going to have an entire team of people that are, that are charging directly at them. Um, Membership is going to be a huge focus for mine always. I think that we can add a million members over the next 10 years. I think once we have a million national members, now financially, financially we're competing with the, the, the juggernauts of the two old parties. Uh, we have enough campaign staff for people around the country instead of trying to shuffle around the same 10 people to each campaign around the country all the time. Uh, we have activists. We have new candidates. I mean, membership is is seriously one of the biggest fixes to all of the problems that we've experienced over the last 50 years. And to hear my, my chair um, opponent saying that membership's not as important as big donors is just insane to me. The membership has been the driving force behind this party for 50 years. It's the only reason we've kept our lights on for as long as we have. And if we didn't have membership, we, we wouldn't be a political party in the country anymore. So adding more members is a great idea. It's an idea that's going to give us more can- candidates and activists and party leadership and people who can get us into the media. That's how we fix those issues, but it also helps fix our financial issues. So those are those are going to be my biggest areas of focus once I become chair um, and, and, and whether I'm chair or not. But I would like the platform to be able to, to do those things on a much bigger scale. Right. Um, so um, I wanted to ask you something about that we talked about in the vice chair debate that we had a couple uh, episodes ago. But before I get to that, um, give people an idea. How many how many members does uh, the National LP have right now? And what's the, the yearly or bi-yearly budget? Uh, what 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 size of an operation are we talking about here? So we're currently creeping on about 18,000, which I think um, 
the highest we got in 2016 was about 20,000. So we're creeping on what they brought in. In a non-presidential year, we creeped on what they brought in in one of the most successful elections the Libertarian Party's ever had. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I think we're working with about a $1.3 million budget, but it's gone up quite a bit as well in 2019 because we added so many thousands of new members that we have more we have more money to play with now, but it's still not enough. It's just not enough. We have to keep going. What percentage of that one point whatever million comes from big donors that your opponent uh, wants to focus on? So to my knowledge, the, the National Libertarian Party has four, uh, four big donors big donors that are maximum yearly donors because you can only give about thirty thousand or thirty three thousand dollars a year okay. uh it's the maximum you can give um but you know and I, I tried to explain to him i said look one of my first donors that i got when i first got on the board was twenty five hundred dollars a month that's thirty thousand dollars a year right um that's invaluable to us to have a monthly donor giving us twenty five hundred dollars a month and and it was a big donor you know it was like our fifth big donor that we had or something and uh and it was a great thing, but all of the other members, the thousands of other members that give to the party every month are just as important as the big donors. Right. They're all important. They're all important. And growing the membership base only helps our party. Yeah, it all it all adds up, even $25 uh, a year from some people. If you get an, enough of those people, that it, um, it really makes a difference. Um, so we did, I, I did talk to Ken Molman and Richard Longstrath a couple of weeks ago. They're both candidates for vice chair. So uh, I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on that. Um, I actually I, like both of the guys. I endorse them both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to think of it. I I've known Ken for a few years cause he's in Kentucky and I'm in Ohio. We've worked together. We worked, uh, he hired me to be the finance director and the media guy for Travis Irvine's campaign. So I'm I'm for Ken. I just know him really well and he's a high character guy, but I was really impressed by Richard as well and I he asked for my vote in in an email I said, "Hey, I'm going to support Ken, but I'm going to also tell people to um to that they can have confidence in you and hopefully both of you guys will end up on the uh on the board somehow." Um Yeah, but, they're, uh, they're both good friends of mine. Uh, I like I like them both in several op overlapping issues, but also several separate issues. Uh, I'll be happy to work with either one of those vice chairs. Uh, and and Richard explained it really well. The, the vice chair is going to do a lot of focusing on the inside baseball stuff, anyways, and give me the opportunity to focus on the you know the outward facing, the outreach stuff. And so you know that's what I was born to do. That's what I've been good at for the last two years. And so having a vice chair that's either one of those guys that can focus on so much of the inside baseball stuff is going to be really good for me. Right. Uh, culture is one of those things in an organization that's always hard to put your finger on. Unfortunately, uh, libertarian parties at the national and state level sometimes are given to a lot of drama and personal uh, issues. But those two guys seem like they're the opposite of that. They're the, the type of people you want in a meeting and to avoid that drama and stuff. So, um, yeah, absolutely. What else can we do to to promote a better culture of collaboration on, on, at the that level? Well, I think just setting an example is the most important thing we can do, you know. And I think, you know, I don't like to come on here and bash Nick Sarwark. You know, but I think the last six years, that example has not been set. We've not had a chair that, that doesn't focus on 
inside party politics and uh, as far as arguing with people and, and uh, taking full on digs and having Twitter wars and flame wars. And, um, you know, I did that, too, in 2018. I really did. I, you know, I was that guy. But I, I had to learn that that's not the way to go about things. And I'm glad that I did. Uh, and I think that I can set an example of a guy who's going to work with everybody. Um, is going to try to build inroads with people who doesn't like him. I, I think I showed that last weekend in Pennsylvania by having conversations with people like Brian Ellison and James Weeks and uh, Vincent Stoops, who's harassed me for two years. <laughs> I actually, sat, actually sat down for his camera and we had a good conversation and we hashed some things out. And I've shown that I can build those inroads with people who didn't like me. Um, you know, that's invaluable to this party because we've never had a chairman who could do that. Yeah. In my Yeah. I, uh, and again, not to pile on on Nick, but when he the tweet about, you know, the Mises Institute, which is different from the Mises caucus, obviously, but saying that they're the preferred think tank of actual Nazis. And I liked Nick up until then. And I was dejected and I didn't announce my intentions to the world. But I said, I'm, I may be done with the LP for a while. And but then when I started hearing about you and Michael Heiss, and the Mises caucus, I'm like, these guys are doing it right. They're focusing on a simple, bold message, uh, building membership, building camaraderie. And uh, that's why I joined. And now I'm on the board and helping out. And uh, it's great. And we don't like I, I love it because I, I think people may think of us as, oh, we're the hate Nick crowd. But we don't spend much time at all talking about Nick. We talk about where we want to go from here. So. Yeah, I think we do. I think, you know, being a member, uh, a dues paying monthly member of the Mises Caucus, I'm also a dues paying monthly member of the Radical Caucus, and I've worked with other caucuses, uh, and I think I'm really good at reaching across the aisle. But um, I used to be, a lot of people know this, I used to be a gigantic Nick fanboy. I mean, I really did. He was like my favorite uh, national political figure. I loved the guy. His speech about, uh, you know, your tears are delicious and your parties will die. I mean, yeah. that was, in 2016, that was so amazingly inspiring for me because I was a third party guy, you know. And, um, some of those decisions that he made and the, the turns that he took over the next couple of years are, are what led me to want to run for chair. But it was never just about the hate for Nick. I mean, I, I care about this party first and I care about libertarian ideals even more. And so to have a party that's principled and works really hard and and actually achieves things on a national political stage is what I want to see. And that's that's why I'm running. That's the number one reason why I'm running. Um Richard and Ken, one of the big areas of disagreement, and they were always civil and they, you know, it, it wasn't a, a, a knockdown drag out, but I think they um differ on that. I think Ken it really wants to focus on state affiliate support. And Richard wants to focus more on maybe candidate support. And if I have misrepresented that, I apologize. I think that's correct. Um, where, where do you see, where, where should resources go in those two areas in particular? And explain to people what affiliate support is within the LP and, and what candidate support is and, and, and what approach you want to take. Sure. Well, I, this is an easy one for me. I'm the chair of the affiliate support committee for the national party. Uh, so affiliate support can really mean anything. I mean, 
there's times where affiliate support can help with ballot access. There's times where we ran the uh, LP Everywhere contest to try and get uh, state and local affiliates more active in their communities, which is so very important. I can't stress enough how important it is for libertarians to go out and get involved in their communities because that's where people will notice you every day more often. Um, it, it can really be anything, affiliate support, and it's so vital to the growth of this party that we help affiliates where we can, but also candidate support. So I think, like I said in the beginning, the, the membership will alleviate so many problems, growing the membership base, building that infrastructure, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us with both of those areas. And both of those areas are equally important to me. I, I, can't, I can't say that, oh, I'm going to help candidates over – over uh, affiliates, or I'm going to help affiliates over candidates. Affiliate support is candidate support. Candidate support is affiliate support. So it's they really, really go hand in hand. So, um, you know, fundraising and being able to give fun, uh, funding to states that need help where they need help at is very important, especially with ballot access issues. That's all affiliate support to me. If a state affiliate calls us and says, "Hey, we need ten grand to to get ballot access in Connecticut." We should probably look for a way to help out that state if, if it's possible, but we need to build a membership. We need to build the infrastructure to be able to do that more often. And so they're both very important to me. I, I couldn't pick one. I think they go hand in hand and, and, and that's where I stand on those issues. Okay. Any other uh, priorities that you would want to bring in uh, that aren't, that are being neglected right now? Do you think? Well, I think, the, I think messaging and marketing okay. are the two things that have kind of gone by the wayside we we've never as a board sat down and came up with two or three strong messaging goals that we can focus outward on the public um and and i think the chair should really kind of set the tone there you know the chair is the face of the party the chair is the person who gets asked to the media the most the chair is the one who goes around the country fundraising and meeting people and trying to bring people to the party and there should be focused messaging goals for the for the chair but also marketing you know, we have a national political organization. We have 50 state affiliates. We have countless local affiliates all over the country. It's literally set up like a tree, right? And at the top of the tree, we can build aggressive marketing campaigns, hashtag, whatever, a meme, a small write-up, and we can push all that stuff down to the state affiliates. The state affiliates can push all that stuff down to their county affiliates. Now, we put it all out at the same time. We, we focus on one big marketing campaign. We get in front of millions of people at one time, at one time. At the same time, yep. and it's something that we've never tried to do, and we need to start doing more of that. It needs to be constant. We need to be promoting our principles, our candidates, everything into people's faces as much as possible because they don't know who we are, and they won't so long as we continue to not focus on those things. Right. I think the it Jacob uh, on episode two uh, talked about the importance of having that bold message because without that, we're just a pale imitation of the other two parties who, who isn't powerful enough to hand out political favors and jobs and stuff like that. So the message is first and foremost above everything and ballot access doesn't even matter if we're no different than the, than the two big parties, because if they're not voting for actual change and actual libertarian ideas, I don't see why we're doing this. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad to to hear that. Um, and I've been thinking a lot uh, the last week or so about trying to do some more video for the uh, Mises Caucus. And uh, uh, I think we uh, the LP nationally should really think about that, too. Um, uh, video content explaining and, and, and just trumpeting the message um, that we you have. Like content, Aaron. You've Say, seen it. 
Oh yeah, yeah. You see my that's it. I got yeah. I got the best video guys in the country and they're always ready to build videos for us. So you know, if we if we have some kind of marketing message we can put out, push down to the states and give everybody a really nice solid video to put out at the same time, yeah. it's huge. It's huge for us. Yeah, so. tell, tell us about you had some uh, pretty good uh, reach with a couple of your videos here recently. One, the anti-war one, if I'm remembering correctly, got picked up. And... The anti-war one did really good. My my campaign video where I kind of laid out uh, some, several issues uh, that that libertarians have with the current administration and administrations past. Um, in a in a really digestible short form that yeah. I mean that video got viewed 20,000 times you know and just from a guy who had like 3,000 followers on Facebook that did really well and it's really it's just my voice and then it ends with a, a campaign video of me so um, that that was great you know but we need to build big videos like that big boy videos like that for the Libertarian Party we should be putting them out every week yeah. at least yeah and you, you mentioned hey just had your voice but hey don't sell that thing short you, that, you got a great I would kill for that radio voice um, Thank you. Um, have you, um, t tell me a little bit about what it's been like actually doing all this travel, getting on planes, going to conventions, uh, have people, have you taken a lot of heat? Are people, um, what are they responding to? What's the mood of the party around the country right now? You've seen it, I think up close more than anybody, except maybe Jacob and some of the other presidential candidates. Uh, it's it's buzzing, man. I mean, it's it really. Listen, every speech I've seen this year has started off with "It's a great time to be a libertarian," but it's true. It really is. It's a great time to be a libertarian. People are coming to this party ready to make a difference. Uh, every single room I've been to has been full. Nebraska, Iowa. I mean, places that have had seven people at their state conventions in the past now are filling the room with a hundred people. It's it's a beautiful thing, and and we're doing well. We're doing really well. The Mises Caucus is doing well. The Radical Caucus is doing well. I'm doing well. You know, you might watch Facebook and think that I'm not doing too well because one of my opponents likes to put out these little meme graphics after he wins places like Montana that have three or four delegates, some seven delegates or something. Uh, you know, but we, we're doing really well. And we're seating a lot of people, and there's people that are ready for change. There's people that want to make a difference, that want to see a viable national libertarian party that's going to go out there and put those ideals to the forefront and and drive them home with sad and sad Republican and Democrat uh, candidates. And so it's it's a beautiful thing to see. As far as me, I'm exhausted. I, right. I'm just so tired. Uh, you know, I've been doing this almost damn near nonstop for. Uh, three years. You know, I went to 26 states in 2018. Uh, I got on the board. So every quarter I had to travel to an LNC meeting. I was going to a convention still, even though I was on the board. I was in Florida, North Dakota, places like that. Uh, and then I announced my campaign last year in July. And it was like immediately started traveling for the campaign. But I also get a chance to go do things like I did in North North Dakota, where I went to Bismarck, to the state capitol, and, and we got to uh, go to a two-way rally right there on the state capitol grounds, open carry against red flag laws. I got to talk about the Libertarian Party with a thousand people that were there in North Dakota. We were able to get new members for the North Dakota, uh, North Dakota State Party, uh, and they're starting to thrive and grow and in, a, in a state with about 650,000 people. It wouldn't take much for us to take that state over, so... Um, it's, it's been really good. I'm exhausted, but it's worth it. It's worth every single second that, that I spend, uh, trying to embolden our ideals around the country. It's worth it. All right. Uh, let's take a little uh, minute and talk about the two other main candidates for chair. Um, and again, I'm not trying to get you to, uh, bad mouth them or whatever, but more just to draw the contrast. Uh, so 
uh, first of all, Mike Shipley, what, what have we heard from him in this campaign and what makes you uh, a better choice in your opinion? Well, I think Mike Shipley is extremely focused on bottom unity. And, and I get that, you, you know, if you think about the Nolan chart, the four quadrants, they're the bottom half is supposed to be all libertarian. And so he wants to unite all those libertarians and bring them to the party. And, and it's not even that I'm totally against that anymore. You know, 2018, I kind of came on the scene and was like, oh, I'm going to attack all these people. Look, I don't give a shit what you're doing as long as you're promoting ideals of liberty and no authoritarianism and you're not trying to add the state somewhere else. Then I'm all good with it at this point. Um, if I see you talking about violent uh, uh, collectivism, then I'm probably going to call you out on it. It's just how it's just who I am. So, like I said, I don't really care anymore what people call themselves. Yeah, ANCAP, voluntarist, a mutualist. I don't care. If you're fighting against the state, you're trying to roll the state back, and you're not trying to add more states somewhere else or aggress on my property, then then we're all, then we're all fine. So I think that's his big push with this is trying to unite uh, some clans around around the country, and I think he's. I think he's doing an okay job. Um, I don't think he's, I don't think he's ready for the big show to be the chair and, and to go out there and, and be on the news and, and uh, grow the party as much as he thinks maybe he can grow the party. And, but I, I welcome whatever help he wants to give the party when I am the chair. Yeah. Is he, or, or was he part of the Libertarian Socialist Caucus, or what's his involvement with that? He was one of the, the Libertarian Socialist Caucus, yeah. And he's also, he was the chair of the Outright Caucus, which is the uh, LGBTQ caucus. Um, and they've actually done really good things at helping to make the LBG, uh, LGBTQ community uh, feel more at home in the Libertarian Party, which is, I think it's great too. We're the only place that actually supports their lifestyle. I mean, it's not that we have to support their lifestyle, it's that we support them doing whatever the hell they want. And we're the only party that does that. You know, the Democrats, they were against... Uh, gay marriage until like the 90s right. so we're the only ones that have in our entire existence that have given up a, a voice to people in politics that um that, you know have alternative lifestyles like that but um i think he's the chair of the profitarian caucus as well which kind of uh um represents people who are not rich which is is cool too you know he does he does good things he kind of reaches out to these alternative groups of people and and uh you know that that's needed in this party as well so I, I I apologize. I'm going to kind of circle back to the libertarian socialist thing, because I, I really don't like that label. Um, I know you don't. And um, they, you know, the rent is theft and stuff like that. I mean, I can take I, I, I love good left wingers who are anti-war and pro-civil liberties. But um, so how big of a movement is that? And do they really want to do away with private property or should we, should we be worried about this or what? I think it's a very small group of people. I think, I think it's grown a bit, but a lot of their followers are not ever going to join the libertarian party. They're in the DSA or whatever. Um, and I think that some of the people that are in there are, are good people um, that are in the libertarian party, like Kevin Shaw. I love Kevin Shaw. Kevin Shaw doesn't want to take anybody's property. He wants to start his own hippie commune, you know, and have his own little libertarian socialist set up on, on his hippie commune. That's fine with me. I don't care. I'd, I'd prefer that some of those people call themselves voluntarists because no one likes the word socialist around here. And I, and I agree with that. I'm the same way, you know. Um, but like I said, if you see violent authoritarian collectivism coming from anybody, call them out on it, you know, because yep. we don't support that at our table in the Libertarian Party. And that that was my big gripe in 2018 was if you're going to spew violent collective uh, authoritarianism, then then I don't want you at our table. And, you know, uh, there was a gentleman running against me named 
Matt Kino, who was a violent, collective, authoritarian, calling himself a libertarian socialist. And so that was my biggest gripe. And they got rid of him. I mean, the, the, that caucus actually drove him out of the party completely to the DSA. So, right. um, you know, clean house. So on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, Joe Bishop Henchman, which my impression of him um, is that he's not as ideological. He's a little more buttoned up and, and things like that. And uh, so how are things going uh, between you and him uh, in the debates and things like that? And where do you guys differ? Well, I think I, I focus much more on inspiring people to get involved and, and do work. And he, he focuses much more on uh, the budget. I mean, I think that's, you know, I think that's really his focus. He's a tax attorney and, um, his big thing is the balanced budget, but it, it, we can balance a budget when it's only a million dollars. I, you know, I want to, I want to bring in so much money that Tim Hagen, our treasurer has nightmares at night, right. you know? Uh, and, and I think that focusing so small and, and, uh, and not focusing on growing us to the biggest possible outcome is, is not to have as the head of the party. I mean, we've had this dynamic stagnation for 50 years. It's time to break out of that and have dynamic growth and, and really throw that curve upwards, you know? And so that's, that's where I think our, I differ. He would maintain that status quo that Nick has maintained for six years. Uh, it would continue to dynamically stagnate. We'll probably get a little bit of an influx during this election year. Then we'll drop back down. I mean, at one point, 2018, uh, we were at like, 12,000 members, 12,500 members. I don't want that to go back that way. I want to keep going up. And so I think our big focus is that I think much bigger than Joe. I think on a much bigger scale, I, I think that I inspire a lot more people to get involved. I'm just a blue collar working class guy from the West Coast that has been able to relate to people all over the country and show them that anyone can be involved in politics and, and make a difference in their communities and further. And uh, so that's where we really differentiate. And it's kind of funny because people a lot, a lot of times like to... Um, call me and Mike Shipley the drama candidate, but in our debates, uh, the only person who's thrown out any attacks and falsely, actually, a couple of false attacks has been Joe Bishop Henchman. So uh, um, it's it's pretty funny that they would call him the drama adverse candidate when he's the only one going on the attack against myself and Mike Shipley, of all people. So Yeah, I want to follow up on that in a second, but talk about the, the concept of a balanced budget within the Libertarian Party. It's not as if we're borrowing money every year. It's not like the federal government where we keep running up a debt. So what do they mean when they say when he takes credit, does, does he take credit for like helping balance the budget? What? Oh, sure. Of, but, but it's yeah, not. Joe, Joe, Joe likes to champion himself as the saver of the budget because we were running a deficit. I mean, we were, we were, uh, our budget was bigger than the money we had on the cash we had on hand. Um, and sometimes some of that money came from the convention funds as well, which could be separate. And so Joe essentially came in and stomped his feet until it was so balanced that we had no discretionary funds whatsoever to the point of where we couldn't fix the HVAC in the middle of winter in Alexandria, Virginia for our freezing staff. Oh, wow. And wow. So, um, you know, I, I mean, he can call himself the, the champion of the budget all he wants. But the fact of the matter is, is the people who added new membership to the party that gave us the extra funds. Yeah. Those are the people who saved the budget. And, and I'm one of those people. And that's what I did. And, and also, you know, when when Nick Sarwark, uh, you know, tried to ram through a motion to pay himself $75 an hour, Joe voted yes for that. Yeah. I mean, you can't call yourself a fixer of the budget and then try to get hand out $140,000, $150,000 a year to a guy to fundraise who has historically not been a good fundraiser, yeah. you know. 
Yeah, um, and, but the at no point did the LP like borrow money, right? Or am I getting that wrong? Right. I mean, they borrowed some money from the convention funds for sure. Okay. That's that's something that's something that they're always going to do. Um, but I mean, no, they're not borrowing money from like. I mean, we get no federal funds or state funds or right. I mean, no, there's okay. money. I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't as if he saved us from a bunch of debt and, and, and something like that. Cause we don't really go into debt. So, um, so you mentioned that he has, uh, said a couple of, uh, I think you used the word false things out on the campaign trail. Do you want to address those? Well, yeah. Like in the California debate, he said, all he's done with his time on the board is put out censure motions. And I said, I said I put out one censure motion on a presidential candidate that threatened to blow up our own national convention, and that's it. And he said, no, there's been more. And I said, no, there hasn't been any more. That's the only one. Outside of that, I'm the number one membership recruiter on the party. I, I've been able to inspire people to get involved all around the country. I travel the country. I talk to people. I shake their hands. So if you're saying that's the only thing I'm doing on the board, you're a liar. And uh, and so, yeah, that was that was it. And, and furthermore, I said I talked about this in my podcast yesterday. The real work doesn't get done on the board. It's not where it gets done at. You know, arguing about comma placement in the in the policy manual and arguing about uh, whether our pets should be allowed to have national memberships or not, that's not getting anything done. The The real work is, is when you go out and you put in the legwork and you make this party a home for the politically jaded. And you're not going to do that on those board meetings or arguing with people online. You're going to do that by going out into your community and into the, and traveling around the nation and shaking hands and, and giving people an opportunity to be a hero in their story. Um, I know that uh, I think that after your run in 2018 and during that, um, there were a lot of hurtful and false things said about you. Um, how, <laughs> how, how, how do you, how do you keep rolling through that? what made you not want to give up when stuff like that happens? And is it, uh, is the, is it as bad this year or is it more civil? Um, just talk about that. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, anybody who starts to show success or, uh, become successful in a movement that people don't want them to be successful in, uh, they're going to do everything they can to, to stop that growth. And, um, so people made up a lot of things about me in 2018, that I was a white nationalist, that I was a deadbeat dad, that I was an abuser, that I was this and that and this and that. No proof whatsoever on any of those accusations. Uh, and so- it Wait, really wait, wait, you're not alt-right? I thought you were alt-right. That's why I was supporting you. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, yeah. I know you are, I know. Uh, so in 2018, I, I kind of, like I said, I came out of nowhere. I had just been a publication guy. I had I never dealt with that level of of, of um, hate and vitriol and lies and um, so I kind of grouped in with that a lot of the actual constructive criticism too and I didn't respond to it very well I didn't handle it very well um, and that crushing defeat in 2018 at in, in Louisiana was a, a humbling uh, awakening you know. Um, but I learned how to deal with that stuff. And I learned how to separate the constructive criticism and respond to that in a way that, you know, gives people hope that maybe I'm growing. And I've learned how to kind of just shy away from the, the lies. You know, I, I said this in my podcast yesterday, too. I said, uh, and I'm sorry to all my haters that you're getting a busy tone when you call now. But I got things that are more important than reacting to lies and, and hate. And so and I mean that. You know, I, I, I don't have to respond to that stuff. It may be worse this year. I don't know. I haven't. I've, I've 
haven't paid attention to it so much that I don't even know if it's as bad this year or not. I'm just not paying attention to it. I don't have to comment on every thread I see that some, some uh, say someone saying something bad about me. Uh, I just don't care anymore. We have so much work to do, and I can point to all the successes that I've already had. That why would why would I go out of my way to argue about that stuff constantly? It just doesn't make any sense. It's a waste of, of time, and I don't have a lot of time free these days. Right? Yeah, as I well know, as I well know, you're you're uh, Mike Michael Heiss is maybe the only person that that on occasion outworks you. So uh, in the yeah. LP. He outworks me on his computer at home, but I outwork him outside of the house. For yeah, sure. yeah, you're Mister Outside. He's Mister Inside, and it it, it works. It works. Um, I, I want to give uh, um, I want to get a little bit of your background and why you're a libertarian, and then uh, uh, talk about uh, ways people can help you and your get your plugs out there and all that. So you and I actually have something somewhat in common. I'm a, the Oakland A's are my American League team. I'm a diehard Reds fan, but for the last 20 years, I've been an A's fan, and I married um, a Warriors fan uh, who lived on the West Coast, and uh, now we're the we're the hated Warriors fans here in uh, Ohio. Uh, so you're a Bay Area guy. Did you grow up there? I did. I'm born and raised in the Bay Area, uh, right outside of Oakland, actually. I'm a big, diehard Oakland A's fan. In, in fact, I have an Oakland A's tattoo. That's how much I love my Oakland A's. Uh, I'm a diehard Warriors fan, diehard San Jose Sharks fan. So all my sports except for football in Bay Area. Who's your favorite Oakland A of all time that you got uh, to see? The entire dream team, really. I mean, it was... You know, Jose Canseco, Carney Lansford, Mark McGuire, Ricky Henderson, uh, Dave Stewart. I can name the entire team, actually. Yeah. I, I mean, literally all of them. Uh, Walt Weiss. Uh, God, uh, it that team, I, I couldn't pick one. But, I mean, I always loved the Bash Brothers, Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco when I was a kid. Uh, and watching them win the World Series in 1989 against the Giants was one of the greatest times of my life. So, And, and what happened in 1990, though? I don't want to talk about 1990. <laughs> I was actually at games one and two. Um, and that was like the best thing that ever happened to me until I met my wife was being at those two world series games and Eric Davis hit the home run in game one. And then we beat Eckersley in game two. And, and oh, uh, the X, man. yeah, I remember that. How do you beat the egg? I mean, he was, he was the greatest of all time. Man. Yeah. I, I was, I was 15, 14 or 15. I was like, oh, we're going to lose this one. And, and sure enough, Joe Oliver gets the winning hit. So, um, so how do you get from being a West coast guy, not exactly a hotbed of uh, anything, but left wing, you know, it's Berkeley's right there. My, my wife's sister lives in Piedmont. So when we're out there, it's, it's, it's pretty liberal and we know what California is. How did you end up being a libertarian? Uh, war, man, Iraq. I mean, 100%, you know, I, I joined the, the U S Navy right after September 11th. Um, I was ready to go and defend my country against terrorists that I thought were attacking my my people, you know, and um, within my first year of being in, I was in Iraq and I'm going, why the hell are we in Iraq? These were Saudi nationals via Pakistan that attacked, you know, because we found their passports uh, completely undamaged at the bottom of the rubble somehow. I don't know how that happened. But yeah. um, and so uh, it, it really jaded me on the military industrial complex. You know, the, the shock and awe campaign, I was on the USS Constellation during that. We were dropping thousands and thousands and millions of tons of ordnance on Baghdad, which is just like a big city, just like Oakland. You know, right. people live there. They have animals, family dreams and goals and aspirations. And I just started to realize, like, 
wow, you know, this, I don't want to be a part of this. And so, um, so even on the boat, even on the boat, what did you see on the boat? You weren't in the streets of Baghdad seeing the bombs no. fall, but what? It's, and it's a ship, not a boat, but no, we'll, we'll get I, into that. I apologize. <laughs> I am the least uh, outdoors and military person there ever was. So I get yeah. that wrong all the time. Um, no. So, so we had two galleys on the ship. That's the galley is where you go to eat at, right? I, I big knew, actually knew that. Yeah. As a fat guy, I know where to, where to eat. <laughs> I know where the food is on the ship. Uh, and so they actually turned one of them into a, uh, an ordinance building uh, area. So they were, so it started out with these big, huge drums that had thousands and thousands of these little leaflets in their um, national language saying, leave your house, basically get out. We're going to start bombing. And they were dropping these from aircraft. You know, and I was working on the flight deck, so they were bringing up ordnance all day long, putting it on aircraft, flying into Baghdad, dropping it, coming back empty all day long. 36 hours of shifts of flight ops, this is happening. And I started going, I started understanding the weight of what's going on and what I'm a part of and what I'm doing. And it, I mean, it started weighing on me really heavily. I mean, halfway through the deployment, I'm going, this is not right. You know, we, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be here. There's no reason for us to be in Iraq to begin with. Uh, we're watching on the satellite news that there's been no weapons of mass destruction found. Uh, and we never found any while we were there outside of, I mean, we barely found any weapons outside of some hand-me-down uh, AK-47s and, and some crude IEDs, you know. There was no weapons of mass destruction. We were there for no reason. We were lied into that war. We were lied to stay in Afghanistan. It's it really just opened my eyes to the horrors of our foreign interventionist policies. And uh, when I got out, I didn't, the Republicans didn't really serve my causes anymore. You know, the anti-war sentiment became my biggest cause. And uh, I found Ron Paul in 2007 and uh, changed my life forever. I mean, Ron Paul got up on stage and, and started talking about blowback and he really shoved it uh, down Rudy Giuliani's throat, which I thought was great. And, um, I started to understand why we're constantly in the Middle East and, and that it's not really for our protection and for our safety. And that changed my entire life. I, I was a window that opened that I could never crawl back through, right. you know? And then shortly after that, I found uh, Murray Rothbard's for a new Liberty. And then uh, F.A. Hayek's wrote to serfdom. I read yeah. some, some uncle Mitty. I mean, I started reading this stuff and it, it just, once you get into it, you can't turn back. You right. can't ever look at the state again as anything except an organized crime family that wants to grow its power over normal, peaceful, everyday people's lives around the world. Yeah. So t talk about uh, I know I've known a couple of people in the military and actually a friend of mine um, died a few years ago who died of cancer from Agent Orange in Vietnam. And my uh, one of my best friends, his father just died like two and a half weeks ago from the same thing. And uh, as you know, probably a lot of guys that you served with, not only the physical stuff, uh, but mental stuff, do guys, how quickly and how many of those guys realize that it's not about, you know, freedom and the flag and all that, that it's more about Northrop Grumman's stock price and, and all that. Do, do guys on the, on the ship uh, talk about that? Do they know, or, or what's what was the mood there after uh, a few days of not finding um, WMDs in Iraq? Well, I think so. Everybody in the military's got a different journey, you know, um, especially in the Navy. 
I, I love my, my shipmates to death, but uh, not everyone in the Navy is the smartest human. And so, um, and in fact, they, you know, these, these military branches are looking for that. They want to build you up in their own image and, and, and use you as a weapon. And so, um, you know, everyone's got a different journey, but I'll tell you, if you talk to libertarians around this country, I'd say probably the large, the vast majority of them are veterans. There's a lot of them that are active duty, right. you know, especially on Twitter where they can hide their identity. Yeah. You know, a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of those libertarians on Twitter, man, they're, they're, they're active duty military and they understand because we got to see it firsthand. We got to see the horrors and the ills of the state and our foreign policy around the world. And, and so, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of military people get very jaded with, with the government. And I just think that they don't really feel like they have another option politically outside of the Republican Party because they're the only ones that ever really talk. I mean, the Democrats talk about ending wars, but everyone knows the Democrats continue wars. Uh, the Republicans talk about ending wars, but everyone knows they continue the wars. So why, if you think there's only two options, you're going to pick the one that aligns more closely with your values, because they're both not going to end the wars anyways. But I think if we build that Bible political outlet for them, uh, that we're going to see a lot of veterans come to the Libertarian Party over the next 10 years. A lot more. Yeah, and even back in the Ron Paul uh 2008 and 2012 he was always raising more money from active duty military i think than almost all the other candidates combined he had more active duty and veteran um individual uh donors than any uh presidential candidate in in any party in that race and it's because the people who want to go to war are the people who have never been to war and who will never go will never go the people that don't want to go to war are the people who have been to war yeah. those are the people who know what war is and don't want to go back and so um if you could become a successful politician and talk and and actually start ending these wars you'll have support of military people all over this country look at tulsi gabbard there's a reason why so many military people supported her i mean it's not her socialist policies it's the fact that she, people know she would have ended the wars you know ron paul same thing uh Rand paul even you know, these, Justin Amash, uh, um, Thomas Massey, they all talked about how we should end all these useless, endless wars. And, and they're, they've been successful because they put that at the forefront of a lot of the things they did. Yeah. Um, what are, if you were, how about, let's phrase it this way. Let's say that you were on whatever the most pop, you know, face the nation or meet the press and uh, Chuck Todd or whomever ask you, give me your two minute pitch for why you should be, a, why the viewer should be a libertarian. What other than war, what would be on that in that speech? Well, definitely we would start with war. And always, we should always start with, if you're tired of these endless wars, taking a third of our national budget from your paycheck to kill people overseas that you've never met, uh, then you probably want to join the libertarian party. But outside of that, it's the drug war. God, we got to talk about the drug war. We need to let people know that we should. Well, hey, look, rich old white men are currently making money off things that people are now spending the rest of their lives in prison for right now. And they're doing it legally. And we still haven't released these people from prison. Right. So uh, we have to talk about the drug war and how uh, keeping these people locked up for nonviolent drug offenses is immoral. It's completely immoral. It doesn't help them. It only serves to radicalize them in the prison system. Uh, we have to talk about the Federal Reserve, how the Federal Reserve 
continues to fund these wars and help these wars continue. Uh, they're the ones who can print money out of thin air. They're the ones who devalue our dollar. It's it's really important that these are the issues that we put at the forefront of most of what we do. Everyone's got their pet issue. Everyone's got their pet issue. But if we can stick to these three issues and really put them out, I think our party's going to grow an immense amount. Yeah, I didn't coach you on that or coordinate that, but you answered correctly. Those are the top three issues. The Fed, the war on drugs, and the war. Everything else is is whatever. Um, okay, give give us your um, – how, how do you think Austin's going to go? What can people do to support you, um, whether they can come to Austin or not? What would your pitch be? Because one thing I want to guard against is, even though we've made so much progress in the Mises Caucus – um, I don't want people to think, oh, we got it in the bag. Um, so what do we, we yeah, we don't have it in the bag. Um, we, we need all the help we can get. Uh, we're doing very well. You know, we did very well in California. It's the biggest delegation. It looks like we're about to pretty much split that delegation down the center. We did very good in Florida. It's the third largest delegation. We'll, I'll probably get the, the lion's share of delegates from Florida. Uh, we still have Texas to go. It's the second biggest delegation. They have over 70 delegates. I've won a lot of the small states. You know, um, J- Jacob Hornberger's won in a lot of straw polls. It looks great, but you never know what's going to happen until you step onto that delegate floor. And I learned that the hard way in 2016 when we thought we were walking in with almost 300 delegates and I got 164 votes. So we need you to become delegates to the national convention. If you have the opportunity to make it to a state convention, still go to your state convention, announce that you want to be a delegate. Hook up with the other Mises people that are going to be there because every state has a Mises affiliate pretty much now. And make sure that you vote on the right slate to send to the the national convention. That's what you should be doing if you want to make a difference at the national level. If you want to help me, please send me money. All your monies, every dollar, <laughs> just send it all to me. Uh, if you, it, it, as you know, I'm traveling all over the country. Uh, we're trying to put together campaign and, and convention materials. Uh, we're trying to add a couple more states and maybe a two A rally and all that great stuff. Uh, we're trying to make the podcast plus the activism plus being the chair of the party a full time gig. So if you want to give one time, feel free to go to paypal.me backslash Joshua Smith chair 2020. Uh, if you'd like to do a monthly uh, thing to help this become a full time job, to help this become uh, an activist cause that, that travels the country and makes a difference in all communities, uh, you can go to Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash break the cycle JS. And you can do anything from $5 a month to uh, $6,000 a month, whatever you want to do. So I'd appreciate any and all help you guys can give us there. Great. One last question. What is, for those of uh, our listeners who have never been to a national convention, the LP convention, what can they expect? Craziness. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolute craziness. If you look, I'm sure you've been in a room with 20 libertarians. Now imagine being in a room with 1500 libertarians, right. all on the same floor, all voting for causes they believe in, but also, uh, you know, letting people like Aaron Starr get to the mic to take a lot of time. And <laughs> he, 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 he's really something, isn't he? <laughs> I, Aaron Starr, I, so I live in California. Aaron Starr is a good, a, good, a good guy, but he is very, very skilled in parliamentary procedure. So he likes to he likes to take it to the people on stage. But uh, you'll probably see some dildo waving. Uh, you'll probably see caucuses getting together. You'll get to see a lot of great speakers. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of late night 
uh, sweet parties, and and it's it's a good time. It's a fun time to meet up with other libertarians around the country and figure out issues. It's also a good time to figure out which libertarians you don't want to associate with anymore. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'd encourage everybody to, uh, if you can, uh, help Josh. If you need help, advice, navigating how to be a delegate. If you got shut out of your delegation, there's still a chance that you could be seated with another delegation. Contact the Mises Caucus um, on the Facebook page. Uh, send me a message or send get get all one of us on Facebook or by email, and uh, we'll we'll get you herded um, uh, in there. Um, anything else you want to? Uh, oh, what, I don't think we talked about break the cycle yet. Uh, your podcast. This is decentralized revolution. Uh, tell them about break the cycle. So Break the Cycle is a brand new podcast that I just put out uh, Tuesdays. I do a solo show. It's usually three segments, pretty short, 20 minutes. Uh, I, I talk some political issues and current events, but I try to throw as much comedy as, as I can in there. Uh, I'm, I'm no Dave Smith, but I'm working on it. Have you done uh, stand up? I have. Yeah. Yeah. In the past. So um, and then Fridays, we do a interview show much like this, about 30, 35, 40 minutes. We just had Buck Johnson on from uh, Death to Tyrants, one of my favorite podcasters. Um, so, so there'll be two shows a week and the goal is to turn the podcast basically with the Patreon into a full-time gig so that when we become chair of the national party, we have the opportunity to do that. Plus activism around the country, whatever rallies we can go to full-time. So our number for that is we'd like to get it up to $3,500 a month. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's really not that much for a guy who's going to be traveling around the country fighting for uh, libertarian causes every day as his full-time job. And once that happens, once I become the chair of the National Party, we're going to add another episode per week that will be the chair from the board. So we'll essentially be talking about um, what's going on with the party, what direction the party's headed in, what candidates we're working with, uh, where we're working on ballot access issues, and it's going to be a call to action for libertarians around the country, how they can get involved and where they can get involved. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person out there in in Austin if we get to do it. So, awesome. thank you so All right. much. All right, thanks, Josh. Bye bye. And there you have it, Joshua Smith. I'd like to thank Josh for. Uh, finding the time to talk to me and for all his hard work out on the campaign trail and with the Mises Caucus. I'd also like to thank Dave versus Goliath for the intro and outro music. And just remind you one more time that the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus Mises Pack Money Bomb is happening on Saturday, March 28th at around 11 a.m. Eastern. We're going to start with the live streams and go for several hours with um, Tom Woods, Dave Smith, Scott Horton, a previous guest on Decentralized Revolution, and Jacob Hornberger, who's also been on the show. So to prepare for that and to enter to win the uh, rifle, the AR-15 rifle, the silver rounds and t-shirts and things like that, please go to lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb. And then, of course, the point of the money bomb is for you to help us out financially. And you can do that at that same link, lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb. And there's a form there where you can start your monthly contribution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.